Hello, this is Courtney Act. I am at the National Gallery of Victoria here in Melbourne because I am going to see queer stories from the NGV Collection Exhibition. Excuse me, can you tell me which way to the queer exhibition? You can take the elevator up to level three. Thank you. Welcome back to the NGV's Queer Podcast. I'm Courtney Act. To begin, I want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners of the land on which this exhibition and this podcast takes place. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. In this five-part podcast series, I'm going to explore themes, artists and artworks represented in the NGV's new and free exhibition, which is titled Queer, and it's on display here in Melbourne from the 10th of March to the 21st of August 2022. The exhibition explores the NGV's collection through a queer lens. It approaches queer not just as an expression of identity, but also, I guess, as a framework to understand sensibilities and aesthetic approaches, political and theoretical perspectives and communities. I know that the word queer has a bit of a sordid past and it has been reclaimed by LGBTQ plus people in recent years, but also there is still a lot of trauma that surrounds that word. And in this exhibition, we really want to interrogate the history of that trauma and the reclamation of the word. The theme of today's episode is celebration and memory, and I'm going to be chatting to William Young. I've been familiar with William's photography, I guess, probably since the year 2000 when I first moved to Sydney. He's a prolific photographer who's been capturing the gay scene through the 70s, 80s, 90s, the HIV AIDS crisis, all the way through to today. He's got this amazing archive. I'm really excited for you to hear as well the chat that I had with Dr. Ted Gott, Senior Curator of International Art here at the NGV. He is a wealth of knowledge and I could listen to Ted talk about queer history all day long. Just connecting with these ideas of queerness from ancient times through till now, I think is something that feels so healing for queer people because we don't always think about our identity as as having that rich history, but really it's there. And, and Ted really shares a lot of that with us. So here is my chat with Ted. I am very excited today to be talking to one of the curators of the Queer Exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria. Please welcome Dr. Ted Gott, Senior Curator of International Art. How are you, Ted? I'm fantastic today, Courtney. Thank you. I am very excited for this talk because this sort of section of the podcast came about because in one of our early meetings with all of the curators, we were originally just talking to the artists. And when I was talking to the curators, I was like, you guys, you stimulated all of my nerdy tendencies and excitements about knowing about queer history, about sort of the in-depth process of the curation of this exhibition, especially about international art. And I know we're going to be going back, back, back to antiquity and working our way through to the modern day. So um, people think, I guess, that, you know, queer identity is a modern thing. But in fact, whilst we didn't necessarily have the language 
uh, for thousands of years to describe it. And whilst perhaps some of the records weren't kept so neatly, uh, in fact, queer identities can be seen, you know, back through history to the ancient Greeks and Romans and, and beyond that, right, Ted? Absolutely. Look, the earliest works in the exhibition date from ancient Egypt, um, six centuries before the birth of Christ. And we've got uh, many, many works in the collection that represent the ancient Greek and ancient Roman uh, cultures, which were the, the basis of um, modern Western culture as we know it today. And it's interesting that in ancient Greek, for example, there were no words for either heterosexual or homosexual. Um, and sexual relations by men with both male and female partners were uh, not uncommon in, and in fact in ancient Rome they were completely normalised. These ancient cultures seem to have been very much pansexual. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course they were male dominated cultures so we know a lot more about the men's sex lives than we do about the women. Um, so, so the more things change, the more things stay the same. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but certainly if you're a guy in ancient Greece or Rome there really was very little um, social stigma or, or legislative condemnation of uh, your love life. You could have affairs with both men and women. Uh, it was quite common for people to be married, of course, but once you got married and perf uh, performed the social contract in that respect, then your private life was your private life. Well, dare I say that the phrase doing it Greek uh, <laughs> as a euphemism for anal sex could have originated uh, from ancient Greece. Certainly, and uh, certainly <laughs> an activity that's imaged on a, on a wide variety of um, ancient Greek uh, uh, vases. There are many mm. depictions of that, although you don't normally see them in the art books. Uh, they're normally censored and locked away in sealed cupboards, etc. I'm reminded uh, of a scene from uh, The Bird Cage where there's uh, yes. two men playing leapfrog on some crockery. That's right. They've got to quickly degay the house before the yeah. in-laws arrive. Yeah. Um, back in those days, marriage wasn't about a, a man and a woman falling in love and finding the one. It was more a social contract, right? It was about the bringing together of two families and, and protecting assets. Yes. Marriage was about power and money and property. Uh, it was not about love. If you did fall in love with your spouse, well and good. Divorce was common as well. Uh, Julius Caesar had several wives, the great Roman general, um, uh, but he was also, um, in addition to being a womanizer, he was also uh, renowned for um, his boyfriends and his troops used to love to uh, send him up. They sang bawdy songs about um, an affair that he had with the king of Bithynia, Nicomedes. Um, and famously, he was dubbed by one of his rivals, um, as he was called, every man's woman and every woman's man. Well, there you go. So, this is not normally something that people associate with Julius Caesar. <laughs> no, but um, that's why Julius Caesar is uh, in this exhibition. I'm looking at one of the images that's here. That's right. Yes. In fact, we, we have, uh, because our collection is so comprehensive, uh, we're able to put up images of half a dozen Roman emperors who were all uh, most decidedly queer. Um, also in the classical section, we've got a whole panoply of ancient Greek and Roman gods and goddesses, uh, all of whom were uh, polymorphously perverse, as, as they say, or they were pansexual. Polymorphously perverse. But I'm changing my grinder profile. <laughs> <laughs> perverse is a negative connotation. but It um, is, yeah. 
but let's just call them pansexual. Uh, it was on for young and old, if you were <laughs> a deity. Uh, and again, it just reflected the fact that there was great tolerance in the society. There was not the judgmentalism. That comes, sadly, with the early church fathers. Um, right. And they're represented in the show as well. We have a beautiful um, Greek icon from the 18th century that shows... Uh, St. Basil, Chrysostom and Gregory, and it was in particular John Chrysostom, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople, who was vehemently opposed to homosexuality. And the early church fathers, you've got to remember, they were, they were trying to carve out a new power structure in uh, the third and fourth centuries after the birth of Christ, when the Roman Empire was collapsing. So mm. they seized upon the open sexuality of the pagan uh, world as something to condemn in order to bring in a new power structure for themselves. So it was John Chrysostom who really fulminated both from the pulpit and in published writings that um, all forms of sex were to be banned unless they were performed within a heterosexual marriage with the purpose of procreation. So recreational sex was um, out. Also <laughs> but the church fathers were, were keen to attack the Roman emperors in any way possible, and they seized upon their um, pansexuality as a weapon. And sex in general, I guess, right? Like you said, it was, it was all sex that was taboo yes. and only sex of procreation because obviously procreation was necessary to sustain the species. That's right. Um, but but they began to codify, you know, sexual relations as to be controlled by and dictated by the, the rising Catholic Church. So it's just a reminder that religion was about power. Hmm. Um, of course, it was about spirituality and belief as well, but we mustn't forget that it was driven in the creation of the church by a power structure and controlling the subject's sexuality is the ultimate form of power. I sometimes, I've lately been having this like random thought that, you know, a few hundred years in the future, someone might discover a hard drive, not having any knowledge of the world that we lived in, probably because it's underwater by now, um, by then, and they discover like a hard drive, they work out how to access the information off it, and they, they find RuPaul's Drag Race, and they think that perhaps this is how we established governance back in these times. Like there was one living deity called RuPaul and then she would put all of these drag queens through tests of endurance and then eventually find a winner and they would be the ruler for the next year. And um, I kind of, part of me can't help but think like, maybe that's how uh, this whole Bible thing started. Like it was, it was some sort of like story that was misconstrued over history. Or is it? Well, yeah. <laughs> Because, like, look, I think there are good. I think there are good parallels there, Courtney, and certainly <laughs> the early church fathers had fab frocks. Yes, they did. <laughs> they, they had the most fab frocks of all. Okay, so tell me more about tell me more about this era. All of the sex was tabooed, but then why why the hangover of uh, same sex? Why why is that the thing that has remained? Till today, they well, the early church fathers denounced same-sex attraction as a pagan vice. Um, mm. uh, Saint John Chrysostom, um, in particular, called homosexuality lawless lust and a terrible and incurable disease. He also called it a plague more terrible than all plagues. Nice Gosh. guy. <laughs> yeah, he was also one of the very few early Christian preachers who openly denounced lesbianism. Normally, they focused on male. Um, yeah. same-sex activities. So let's jump forward to another character in the show. That's King Henry VIII of England. We know him as having six ex-wives, beheaded, 
That's right. Yeah. However it quite goes. I've seen Six the Musical. I know all about this. Okay. Well, (laughs) in this show, he's seen as a bad guy uh, Uh uh, because in um, 1533, he actually codified homophobia by bringing in to law in England what was called the Buggery Act. And that was punishable by death. And buggery at this time didn't necessarily mean anal sex. It simply meant sex between two men. Ah. So 1533, Henry VIII brings in the Buggery Act. What's interesting is it wasn't didn't mean that Henry VIII himself was necessarily homophobic. It was a, a combination of codifying these church preachings against same-sex relations with a power structure. If you if he accused someone of buggery, he could not only put them to death, but all of their property was forfeited to him as the King of England. So people were prosecuted for buggery, not because they were actually guilty of same-sex relations. It was a convenient thing to accuse someone of. Then you can not only chop their head off, but you can seize their castle as well. Very convenient. I guess the question, though, because in several of the examples we've talked about, it was almost like same-sex relations were targeted But what do you think the underlying root of that is? Like you said, in this instance, it was about him being able to prosecute people. But why target same-sex relationships? Wouldn't there have been other things that these people through history could have gone for to maintain and control power? There's just this kind of obsession with uh, the private sexual lives of ordinary um, citizens. And it seems to be common to um, governance across the world. Um, in pre-modern times. Um, okay. And perhaps it is a form of social control. But, of course, there are bumps in the roads. It doesn't mean that these laws automatically put an end to same-sex relations. We know that there were thriving gay and lesbian subcultures, um, and particularly we know about them in England because of the intense documentation. We also know about public figures who are in uh, exposed because their every moment is documented. Uh, for example, James I of England, he mm-hmm. was famous for having a prominent boyfriend, uh, George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham. So although his predecessor, Henry VIII, brought in the Buggery Act, uh, there was no way they were going to behead the King of England um, and his boyfriend. <laughs> so James James was married, of course, but he showed far more affection to George Villiers uh, than he did to his wife. Um, he wrote love letters to him that survive. He called him my wife in the love letters. He fondled and kissed him in front of the whole court. And this is not rumoured, this is commented upon by um, ambassadors Mm -hmm. from France writing back to that country, sort of scandalised by this. Um, Over in France itself, you know, the private life of uh, the kings was documented to an extraordinary degree. We know, for example, that poor old Louis XIII of France, he had a private physician from boyhood. And this guy, whose name was Jean Héroir, he logged intimate details of the king's daily life for over 30 years. And for example, the monarch's every bowel movement was timed and dated for 30 years. So there's no private life as a king. Mm. But this makes it interesting when the king is same-sex attracted. 
Yeah. So that's why we know so much about the Duke of Buckingham, but also about a man who was a ruler of France just before James I takes the throne in England, and that is Henri III, Henry III, the King of France. Now, uh, he was married because that's what you had to do as a ruler. Yeah. But his reign was undermined by a mm. whispering campaign of incredible malevolence. He was considered to be unfit to rule because he was opposed to war. He was very effeminate. He dressed in a gender-slipping way. And um, above all, he promoted a dozen handsome young men that were from secondary noble families, so therefore the wrong side of the tracks, which upset the court. And they were suspected, because they were all young, single, and beautiful, they were suspected of being his sexual partners. And uh, they were called the mignons, the sweethearts. So this was a <laughs> scandalous period in French history. Um, wow. And the mignons all cross-dressed. Huh. Must have been a fabulous time to be around if you were if you were in the right circles, of course. Yeah, I look this this. I've often wondered if, like, in some future time, when society has less uh, hang-ups about gender and sexuality, that uh, my life might manifest differently. But it sounds like perhaps back in France in those times, I I could have been one of them. What were they called? The sweethearts. Mignon. 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 Like filet mignon? <laughs> it's, it is spelt like filet mignon, M-I-G-N-O-N, yes. So filet mignon means um, a sweet, tasty piece of meat. Oh, <laughs> hello alone. I'm upgrading my grinder <laughs> profile again to filet mignon. <laughs> um, so what was the ongoing legacy of Henry VIII's act? Sadly, it meant that as England colonised various countries around the world, this legislation followed that colonization, which led to the prohibition of homosexuality, the punishment by the death or imprisonment or torture of uh, gay men in particular, because the Buggery Act did not apply to women. Um, it led uh, to anti-gay legislation that survived in many, many countries until recent years, and in fact, still is in place um, in countries yeah. in Africa, for example, that were colonised by Britain. Don't forget that here, um, homosexuality was only decriminalised um, in Victoria in 1981. In Sydney in um, 1984, six years after the first Mardi Gras party. <laughs> Wow! So you know, and in 1997 in Tas, yeah, and in 1997 in Tasmania. Still in 35 uh, of the Commonwealth states, it's criminal and it's legal only in 19 Commonwealth states. Like we don't think about like just in the British Commonwealth in the world, it's still criminal. And so interesting because you think of, you know, the Commonwealth Charter and you think of these ideals that we hold true to our land about, you know, equality and equity. Yet in 35 uh, Commonwealth states, it's still criminal to love someone of the same sex. Yes, and, and sadly, a lot of this dates back to um, Henry VIII and this Good Buggery Act of um, 1533. And of course, you know, sadly, this led to an institutionalised and state-authorised homophobia that just became um, a natural part of the way you were raised. Um, mm. So, you know, if you're brought up in a society that criminalises sex between men, then um, you are brought up with an innate prejudice yeah. Um, you may be the kindest person on earth, but from upbringing, you've been, you've had this mental set. So people have had to break away from that in order to accept our community as well. So it's been a learning curve for both sides, of course. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, 
the the Mardi Gras in Sydney and uh, you mentioned the you know the decriminalization of homosexuality in 1985 I think you said in New South Wales uh, 1984 in New South 1984. Wales um, and Obviously, also, during that time, Australia and the world, the, you know, gay men and same-sex attracted men around the world were decimated by HIV-AIDS. Yes, yes, very sadly. The public health crisis of HIV-AIDS came about before um, the decriminalisation of homosexuality in many places in the world. Uh, and certainly, you know, it coincided with the decriminalisation in Victoria. 1981 is when they coined the term GRID, gay-related immune disease, which was the first name for AIDS. The term AIDS itself uh, didn't come around until after they had recognised the HIV virus and then realised it had nothing to do with um uh, gay sex per se, so then it became acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS, but the damage was done when mm. it was first called the gay disease in 1981, remember three years before decriminalisation in Sydney. So the impact on those days is impossible to describe mm. um, unless you lived through it. The homophobia that was just the standard norm every day in press, in television, in radio commentary, there was just this relentless attack upon uh, the gay and lesbian communities um, and the fact that uh, we were branded as the um, vector of this new disease that was going to destroy um, heterosexual society. Of course, there was little recognition that the virus had nothing to do with one's sexuality, mm. but that took many, many years to overcome. You, in fact, did live through it, right, Ted? Yes, I did. Yes, I was um, 21 um, in 1981 when the term GRID came out, gay-related immune deficiency. I remember reading the newspaper articles, absolutely terrified. I had not yet come out to my family and friends. And suddenly there I saw my body uh, being um, seen by the populace around me as a vector of disease. It was the most horrible thing to live through. So before... Before the time of GRID and this sort of moral panic on homosexuality, what was the state of affairs like for, you know, same-sex attracted people in Australia? Because I know that um, in Australian pop culture, you know, in the 70s, we had the most progressive television in the world when it came to same-sex relationships. We had shows like Number 96 with... Uh, I believe first same-sex kiss. Uh, Carlotta was the first ever trans, openly trans person to play a trans role in a scripted series anywhere in the world. The next time that would happen would be decades in the future. So it seemed like Australia was leaps and bounds ahead of um, other Western nations when it came to visibility of queer people. And then I feel like the the you know the AIDS crisis really threw us back. Um, into yes. the dark ages. It's a provoked a terrible backlash uh, and then was used by uh, political figures and by religious figures, uh, again, in this social power structure, you know, that um, uh, they just thought the world would be better off without the queer communities. And this certainly is tragically what happened in the United States where the Ronald Reagan administration completely ignored the health crisis. There seemed to be a feeling that they just hoped that uh, all the queer communities would simply die off and then there would be a mm. social and moral problem removed from the world. Wow. I mean, the, the, the recovery of which and the stigma of which, you know, still um, circles around 
gay men and queer sex and and the community at large even today we're still trying to dismantle those stigmas and um then thankfully you know because of medical advances and technology the um the landscape of hiv and aids is completely different now you know we we talk about things like u equals u undetectable equals untransmissible that people who are hiv positive and on medication can't transmit the virus live you know lives that are as long and, and as healthy as any other average citizen um and so it's it's interesting to see how um the the fear-mongering of that era um still plays forward in today's society Absolutely. It was only in late 1995, early 1996, that the new uh, retroviral drugs came about um, that finally stopped the death toll from um, Mm. HIV AIDS, um, which was a miracle. And that gradually um, led to a dissipation of the um, demonization of the queer communities that led to a lessening of some of the homophobia. But prior to those miracle drugs coming on the market, being diagnosed with HIV was pretty much a terminal diagnosis, which was just terrible and tragic. Um, And see, the thing is that when you demonize a community, you strip away the humanity and therefore Mm. you cease to, by classifying them as as demonic other, uh, people feel justified in um, prejudice against them because they're not really humans. Yeah. Wow. I'm looking here at an image uh, by David McDermott um, called Body Language. Do you want to tell me more about that? Yes, it's a beautiful piece. It's a large male nude done in uh, holographic reflective foil. So that silver foil that uh, reflects a mirror image and also uh, has a holographic effect as you move past it that's a bit like a mirror ball spinning in a disco. Mm. Um, And it creates a rainbow of colours as you walk past it, which is quite apt referencing mm-hmm. the rainbow flag, of course. But this is a, an allergaic work. It's created in 1993, years after David was diagnosed as HIV positive himself. It commemorates his time dancing at the wonderful uh, queer disco Paradise Garage in New York that was presided over by the legendary DJ Larry Levan. So hence the mirrorball imagery of the foil. But this man's body is inscribed with the names um, Brian, Herb, Carlos, Allen of all of the first friends of David who had passed away in New York from HIV AIDS related complications. The head of the figure is a square that images um, both the the outlaw from um, uh, Sidney Nolan's Ned Kelly series. So it's the famous Ned Kelly square helmet, but it also refers to gay men as being uh, sexual outlaws at such a time of homophobia and paranoia. And that in turn images uh, the great uh, gay book by John Reshi from the 1970s called The Sexual Outlaw. That was one of the first great texts to demand the right for equality and uh, freedom to live our own lives in our own way. A great American text that David loved. Um, inside this square head, there is the word, the letters AIDS, AIDS, and they are inscribed within a salvastica, which is the opposite of the swastika. The salvastica is the left-leaning uh, geometric figure that is the um, symbol of the goddess Kali from Indian culture, the goddess of the night, the goddess of partying, but also of death. So it's a multi-layered work wow. that is that is it's beautiful. It's allergic. 
It's funny and sad at the same time. David, he was a friend of mine, I'm privileged to say, and um, Mm. he had a fantastic dry sense of humour. So most of his artworks have this combination of a really serious gutsy message about the HIV AIDS crisis and he uses humour and beauty to draw you in and make you think about it. You're drawn to this work, you say, oh, it's that beautiful thing, and then you go and you realise, oh, I just got slapped in the face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the part of this nude that uh, Ted didn't mention is that um, the figure you can see from behind and they are clenching their buttocks and you can see their, uh, their scrotum and their penis dangling between their legs and there's a blue dot where their anus is, which, you know, again, refers back to uh, anal sex, which was the... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the uh, uh, which was that... the, the common vector for... Um, catching HIV AIDS uh, was unprotected anal sex. Yeah. Uh, so subsequent to this, David did the famous series of same-sex posters for ACON, the AIDS Council of New South Wales, which were those brightly coloured posters that were plastered all over Australia um, in the in the um, uh, from 93 uh, through to the mid-90s. And they were pushing a very safe sex message. I mean, one of the things that David was commenting on is that is people's paranoia about sex, that sex itself leads to death. It doesn't. Unprotected sex does. Safe sex is, you can have safe sex till the cows come home. Um, and that's what he was promoting. So I think he did a very good job. It's not just a blue dot, Courtney. Um, when you actually go into the work, the um, anal hole is an eye that winks at you. <laughs> oh, wow. The layers. <laughs> The man with the winking anus. It's interesting yes. though, right, because there's, there's. I remember when I was 18 and possibly even, you know, in the 90s watching the Mardi Gras broadcast on the ABC, where it has returned to this year, in fact. Um, I, I, I do remember having those sensitivities of, oh gosh, why does it have to be so sexual? If they just, you know wore normal clothes and acted normal, then, you know, people might accept them more quickly and more easily. And, of course, as you grow up and you you are immersed in queer culture and understanding, you understand that I think that the queer community is here to liberate people from their sort of repressed sexuality and, and this demonization of of bodies and of sex and and I guess in in a way that's probably left over from the church that we talked about earlier this idea that sex could only be for procreation and not enjoyment and and I feel like the queer community are, are ahead of the eight ball uh, when it comes to sex and sexuality and this idea of you know this image some people might see as grotesque and others might see as beautiful uh, I think that there's there's actually another side to look at it and it's really uh, seeing and experiencing the human body and sexuality is something that's wonderful and natural and exciting and and to realize that perhaps some of those ideas that we have about sex aren't actually true. They were things that were given to us and that we have the opportunity to transcend them and to get beyond those expectations that we grew up with. Absolutely, uh, Courtney. End look, of you're rant. reminding me of my. <laughs> <laughs> You're reminding me of my favourite character in every Mardi Gras parade, and that is the absolute opposite of um, queer people flaunting their bodies. You know, it's not the dykes on bikes bare-breasted that start the parade. It's not the dancing boys wearing nothing but G-strings. It is the most conservatively dressed Miss New Zealand. <laughs> my favourite character. <laughs> Tell me about Miss New Zealand. 
She uh, comes along. Uh, it's it's a man dressed in nineteen uh, fifties sensible shoes, um, <laughs> a twin set, sometimes pearls, a very sensible hat, and she's just straight out of a nineteen fifties interior design magazine. And she just carries a little sign saying Miss New Zealand. Oh, I'm looking at her now. She's got her handbag <laughs> on her elbow. It's such a marvelous celebration, the Mardi Gras, and I've just been quite reflective lately I'm thinking about you know from the year 2000 when I came out at the age of 18 to now and it's unfortunately only now that I've come to have more understanding and knowledge of my queer history and at first I felt guilty like oh how uncultured that you didn't know these things and then I realized actually to a younger queer person you know, these stories weren't told on television you couldn't listen to them on podcasts you didn't see them in movies you could occasionally read about them in books and so I just feel so fortunate now to be living in a time where I get to hear all of this oral history that perhaps otherwise um, hasn't been so deliberately recorded Um, but but I guess William Young's um, photography is a is a place where this history has been recorded Um, and that's who I'm going to be speaking to up next Um, William's photographs of course he's a social a social documenter of uh, Sydney at large, but the Sydney gay scene from the 70s all the way until today, really. William's photos that are included in this exhibition, what um, what will we see? You'll see a beautiful photograph that celebrates uh, William's uh, Chinese-Australian heritage, in which he's dressed up in a Chinese scholar outfit. And then you'll see a more poignant work that has a similar black humour to David McDermott's. Um, and it's a, it's a photograph of his hand containing a variety of pills, uh, some of which uh, he has to take because, um, uh, like myself, he's an ageing gentleman. Um, (laughs) And you feel in the morning that you just have this daily pill regime just to keep functioning. But also tucked in there is a little Viagra pill. So (laughs) when I spoke to William, I said, I hope that wasn't a daily pill in the morning because that could get, (laughs) I mean, just uncomfortable, quite frankly. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to everyone hearing this conversation with William. He is someone that I've known about for such a long time, seeing his photographs and the way he documented the Sydney scene. And it's interesting, you know, Ted, like in the 70s, William was probably just a kid with a camera taking photos, which yeah. back then, of course, it wasn't like now where everybody has a camera. He, it was a very deliberate choice that he made to be taking these photos but what, what was just some kid with a camera back in the 1970s has turned into one of the most wonderful collections of um, photographs of the Sydney gay community over the course of 50 years. It's an extraordinary body of work, isn't it? And what he has done miraculously is that by simply turning up everywhere, every party, every fashion parade, uh, every event, every protest, uh, he took pictures of the fleeting and the evanescent and he made that fleeting life in gay Sydney permanent Mm. so he he has documented something that would otherwise have been completely lost and would just be anecdotes um, and um, increasingly as people passed away it wouldn't even be memories it would just be rumors of what life was once like Williams photographs show us forever what life was like Um, and shows the community developing and growing and changing. It's it's a most extraordinary piece of social documentation, not just in Sydney, but I think anywhere in the world. 
Yeah. Well, I think that is a great place to jump into my conversation with William. And Ted, I just want to say thank you so much for chatting to me today about all of this. I, 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 I don't know how everyone else feels, but getting to hear queer history, um, it just makes me feel so connected in a way that perhaps growing up you don't. You feel that isolation and it's only as you delve into these subjects that you realise that queer people have, of course, existed from time immemorial and, and continue to thrive today. And getting this little walk through all of that history from the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks all the way through to today has just been such an honour. And um, thank you so much for sharing all of your wonderful knowledge with us. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Courtney. Thank you. Hello, William Young. Thank you so much for talking to me today. How are you? Hi, Courtney. I feel like I know you because I've known of you since I was a wee slip of a lass at 18 years old, arriving on the Sydney gay scene, which I know you've been photographing for decades and decades, but I don't think we've ever actually met in real life. No, I don't remember uh, meeting you. I would remember it, I think, especially <laughs> if I had my camera. I think one of my youngest um, memories, and it's probably a photo that you both love and also plagues you, <laughs> is the infamous photo of you taking a photo of Kylie Minogue. Oh, yes, that's right. That's by Maz Image. Or no, actually, the images of Kylie Minogue taking a photo of me. That's what it is. Yes, that was taken by Maz Image. I remember that image as a, as a, a young person in Sydney and I was like, who's that man and why is Kylie Minogue taking a photograph of him? <laughs> and then um, the, the legend of William Young was... Uh, told it to me and of course I had seen your work um, I think even in like you know the queer spaces up and down Oxford Street but in exhibitions and things like that and and one of the unique characteristics of your work um, photographing uh, the queer scene over the last well I guess it must be five decades now is it? Um, 70 yeah five. I guess one of the signatures that I remember is your drawing uh, and writing on your photographs. Yes. There were these beautiful, rich photographs, um, and then there was writing on them, describing different things and pointing out different things. What was the origin of, um, of that? Well, I started to do... Um, I was a, I'd call myself a documentary photographer, mm -hmm. photographer right up to um, the late 80s. And then I started to do performances, which is talking with slide projection. Mm -hmm. And um, I developed that. I, I did many shows, or I have done many shows, but uh, it's like a com it's as simple as just talking with slides. But I found that I was the glue that held the performances together. Mm -hmm. So I came out of my shell a bit which was from behind the camera, and then I kind of stood centre stage. And so I started to tell more personal stories. I, I got more confidence just being me. And 
Later then, when I looked back at the photographs, when I had an exhibition, I realised that some of the photographs had stories to them. Mm. So the simplest way that I did it was just to write on the photograph the story. So it was very direct. But I didn't do that until the 90s. Okay. And, and a lot of the photographs I'd taken, I wrote on, were 20 years old. So that was like a new development. Wow. Um, what were some of those stories uh, that you remember that you would, you would tell by uh, writing on those photos? One of the most um, famous one is uh, Joe, which is an encounter with a deaf person. And so um, that's, that's a real story, how I encountered Joe at a disco and we went home together and then in the morning I sent him off in a taxi. So that's that story. <laughs> and, uh, and there's another quite well-known one called um, Darren and Lyndon. And they, uh, they were a kind of quite famous couple in the 90s and they, had, they were toned. And so I um, wrote a story about my take, taking their photograph and it, it sort of goes that they had a request. They wanted a photograph like Herb Ritz and um, so I explained to them that I couldn't really take a photograph like Herb Ritz because that would be imitation. Mm -hmm. But I, I got that they, they wanted kind of tasteful, sexy photographs, nothing pornographic. And so I, I wrote that on, on, the, on the photograph <laughs> of them. So, so um, in fact, many of my encounters, this is in the 80s, in the 70s, um, I, I wrote about because um, um, th there, there was kind of a, a rich story there when I was younger and had a more active sex life. <laughs> so some of them are sordid stories of sex tales. Yes, yes, encounters, I call them. You mentioned earlier... Um, sort of coming out from behind the camera with these live performances that you started doing. Uh, and I know I've heard you speak about before uh, in the beginning, in your emergence into the Sydney gay scene, that the camera itself was almost a device that gave you access to that space or gave you um, almost, I guess, like your form of drag, um, that the camera was there as an intermediary between you and this room full of uh, people where perhaps without the camera you wouldn't have felt as either comfortable or welcome or any of any of those things. Can you tell me a bit more about how the camera first came to be uh, a part of your identity um, in that social setting? I guess I started taking photographs of parties mm -hmm. and that's a social act activity. And then there weren't as many cameras around then because mm. everyone's got a f phone now, but it required slightly more skill to take a photograph <laughs> with a camera. You're and talking it down, William. There was lots <laughs> of skill involved. I've seen a lot uh, of very bad photos from a time before iPhones, and so the photos that you've captured, you know, yeah. especially in a party, the lighting, the darkness, the flashing lights, the, all of that sort of stuff. 
and people wanted to see the photographs. And then I realized that um, my camera was an entree to social events mm. and people would ask me to their parties. And in fact, I felt quite privileged at times that people let me into their lives. This is in the 70s. Mm. The gay community was, was virtually invisible before Stonewall. Mm. Uh, I mean, there was some, some record of it, but it wasn't until after Stonewall that people started to record it in, in a big way. And I think probably my photographs of the 70s are very important because they're rarer. Like by the 80s, there were many photographs, mm. photographers photographing the gay scene, and that was also Mardi Gras. Mm. So that was a big step in the... The, the, the visibility? Visibility, absolutely. It was it became the flagship of visibility. It was on television, mm. and that helped change people's minds. I would imagine as well in the 70s, um, there must have been a huge amount of trust that was bestowed upon you by these people because just being queer or gay in that time was such a taboo. So to have a, a photo record taken of you and all of your friends at a party or something, they were, that would be a very vulnerable experience, I, I would imagine, for them. Yeah, yes, there was two things going on then. There was a kind of fear of being out mm. um, and, and people were very cautious about their images or where they'd end up. But there was also a, the new generation of gays which were coming out they were quite blatant and they were saying things like, yeah, take my photograph, publish it, I want to be seen. And so that there was those two things happening at the same time. And where did your love of photography come from? In an earlier life, I was an architect. Mm -hmm. And so I had a camera um, as an undergraduate and I took photographs, architectural photographs, but then I realized that I was more interested in people. Mm. And so then I just gradually changed to, to photograph people. But I was also uh, a playwright um, and I couldn't make a living from being a playwright. So I found that I could take, but I was surrounded by actors. So I started to take actors' portfolios, mm -hmm. and then I could earn enough money from that to pay the rent. And so so I started off as a freelance photographer. And then I started photographing parties and social events. I guess I became a social photographer, although more accurately I'd describe myself as a freelance photographer, and I'd just do any, I'd take anything that I could people would pay me money for. <laughs> Were you aware at the time of the importance of documenting the gay community? Were you aware of how now, 50 years later, 40 years later, 30 years later, these images that you captured are such a important sort of capturing of history? Or was it more just good fun? Was it art? What was the sort of feeling that drove you at the time? Um, I certainly didn't realise their importance. 
and I wish that I'd have a, had had a second chance at it, mm. because I'd have taken totally different photographs. <laughs> For example, I, I was too close in all the time. Mm. When really, I if I'd have stood back and photographed the room, I think that would have been better. I, I'd have just had more range in my photographs. Mm. But I never had any idea that they were valuable, although. I started to get some realisation of this, but this is after I'd been photographing for over a decade, that they were important and that it was kind of a, a privilege to have this access into the gay community. Everyone was telling me that it was a... Straight people were telling me it's a, it's a phase you're going through and they're not important. <laughs> they are important. They're probably the most important part of my collection. Hmm. When did you start to realise the importance of those photos? I suppose um, I had my first exhibition in 1977. That was It was called Sydney Files, P-H-I-L-E-S, at the Australian Centre for Photography. And um, that kind of launched me because then I realised that there was an interest in them. And there was also, um, I realised also that people wanted to see photographs of themselves. <laughs> that was a kind of realisation. And so I just kept doing them. But then my work was quite marginalised. People really didn't see the importance of it e either. They thought, oh, he's photographing on the margins. It's not important, really. I think that that was the message I was getting from people. It's interesting to think about, like, you know, you in the, in the 70s, taking all of these photographs. I could imagine there was an excitement, it, you know, you're in a party environment, people are having fun, um, you're sort of documenting these times. And then over the years, this thing that brought you joy and that's, that you connected with because it was your community um, has just sort of grown in importance to a point where today that I think because queer visibility and acceptance is on a whole new level, especially, you know, over the last 10 years, that what was um, something, like you say, that wasn't respected, it was seen as on the margins, has just moved to a point where it, it's, yeah, it's one of the most important um, markers of our community from that time. And it, I don't know, I think there's something telling in, um, in art and in life that when you're just following that thing that's your passion that brings you joy... Um, and not to be, not to sound like a self-help book too much, but I think there's something beautiful about the way, um, yeah, actually at the beginning of my book, I said something about, you know, people say you can't change the world, you can only change yourself. And I was like, don't listen to those people because I've found that like the, the more you stick to being yourself, sometimes you get lucky enough in your lifetime that the world catches up with you. And I feel like the world has caught up with you and what you were, what you were taking photographs of. Yes, I would agree with that. In fact, I've seen since, in fact, I first arrived in Sydney in 1969. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was, I was in the closet when I first came to Sydney. And I, I, but the climate was such that I could come out as a gay person. 
In fact, I was, I describe it as I was swept out <laughs> as a gay person by events at the time. I didn't do it consciously. Mm. It was like just carried along by the, by the force of the movement. But it took many years to become um, accepted. And there was, there was activism. The way I see it is that there was a lot of activism in the 70s. Then came the commercialization of the gay scene in the 80s, where the big dance parties, the gay dollar, all of that. And then Mardi Gras plays an important part in this story of Sydney, um, because when Mardi Gras went on television, gay became visible. People didn't like it, but it, it's a kind of talking point. Mm. And um, it's also a code for being gay in the straight world because I used to go to a photo shop in Bondi and um, I never ever said that I was gay, but they would see all my photographs and the prints of my photographs. And one year they said to me, are you going to Mardi Gras this year? <laughs> and sort of that was like code to, oh, we know you're gay. Yeah. And, and so... It's kind of, Mardi Gras is terribly important in the yeah. story of Sydney. But the, the latest thing is the marriage equality um, um, plebiscite, mm -hmm. where that, that, that's been our greatest acceptance. And I think that's also a very important thing. And we had to go out, we had to go out in, in the streets and fight for that as well. So it's all been, been a fight for our rights mm. as as i see the story you you talked about when you arrived in sydney in 1969 um in the closet what uh what happened what predated sydney in 1969 i studied architecture at queensland university mm -hmm. and i was interested in theater mm -hmm. but I, I was uh, i was in the closet as i said mm. And then when I came to Sydney, I didn't carry that pa past history with me. Yeah. And it was just so much easier to come out in a new town because no one knew me and I could just create a new identity. Did you grow up in Queensland? Yes, I did. Yeah. Whereabouts? So, so I was born in North Queensland uh -huh. um, and uh, my parents had a tobacco farm on the Atherton Tableland in a a very small town called um, Dimbula, so that that's that's where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And then I went to high school in Cairns, and that was the worst time of my life. Mm. It was just horrible because uh, I think that puberty is a horrible age where you're so uncertain, and I just didn't seem to fit in. And, and then. I came down to Brisbane to study architecture and I suddenly bonded with my uh, architecture colleagues and so that, that was good, although I was still in the closet. But then when I came to Sydney, then I was able to be swept out of the closet. Mm. I, I came out to my relatives on television, okay. so, that, so that was an easy part of it, yeah. In that time, in the in the sixties and seventies, coming out as gay, period, 
would have been a challenging thing to understand. Were there extra sort of layers um, growing up, you know, in a in a an immigrant family, a, a Chinese family? Were there extra sensitivities that uh, compounded your coming out? I suppose um, being Chinese or other, I'd always felt like an outsider. But it's kind of interesting that I came out as a gay person in the, in the let's say, 1970. And um, I, the way I describe it is that gay liberation was I was breaking out of sexual oppression. Being gay politicised me and um, I realised that the what issues were at stake. But it wasn't until... 12 years later that I realised that my ethnicity had been mm. suppressed as well, being a Chinese living in a white Australia. And so I kind of claimed my Chinese heritage and I described that as coming out as a Chinese. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that, that's my experience. And so they've been two big themes of my work yeah. is gayness and being a racial minority. Yeah, was there, you know, Cairns and Brisbane and Sydney and that growing up period, was there a importance placed, I guess, on assimilation? Was there a, a, an importance on sort of minimising the Chinese side of, of you? Oh, that was my family's big thing, you know, fit in, don't mm. drop the boat. So, so that's how I'd always been been brought up that that way, which I imagine would be a symptom as well of being living in Australia at that time. It was about survival, right? Like fitting in was about survival back then. Yes, a a absolutely. There's certainly generational attitudes. I think that you live in a you live in a generation into which you're born. And you, you get all your ideas from that. And then the next generation ha is different, slightly different, has slightly different um, social attitudes. I'm the same age as Dennis Altman. Mm -hmm. I feel a big affinity with him. And, and it's a generational thing that we grew up w when homosexuality was not accepted. And criminal, in fact. Yes, and so it's it's been a journey. He's written books about it, and I've taken photos. How does it make you feel um, in today's sort of media world, um, gay Chinese Australian uh, people, say like Ben Law, really celebrating and centering his Chinese culture in his work and in his art? Is is that the the paying forward of the world that? you existed in and, and created art in? Is, is he sort of the, the manifestation of the future of William Young? Absolutely. We're great friends, by the way. Yeah. And um, uh, I've almost thought of adopting him as my son. <laughs> I think he's got a wonderful career. Yeah. I mean, and in, in the way he can talk about all these issues. He's always got his finger on the pulse of things, I felt. He really does. Um, so you're documenting the Sydney gay scene in the 70s and 80s. Um, 
And in that time, I imagine there was a lot of joy and party and celebration. But then I guess in the 80s, there was also the impact of the AIDS crisis. Um, and your photography of, of that era is also such an important documentation of one of the, you know, the biggest, if not the biggest uh, sort of struggle and of our community during that time. Tell me about that era and the photographs during that time. Yes, it was a terrible time when we'd sort of made so many, we'd liberated ourselves to a great degree. We'd kind of formed a cultural group. I mean, gay was a subculture and it was quite articulated. And then AIDS came along and it was a chance for our enemies to strike against us when we were down. And so I'll never forget those years or the kind of reporting about AIDS. And there are times when I just felt I didn't have the strength to read the newspaper because of the reporting of it. In fact, I stopped reading newspapers for a time. But then the community rallied against it. There were terrible, terribly moving times, the late 80s and the early 90s. And um, the lesbians ca- came to to help, I mean. I, I'm not quite sure if gay men would have helped if it was a lesbian disease. Mm. Um, that's just my impression. Yeah. But there was big, uh, big so- um, solidarity within the gay and lesbian, to use those two, two general terms, yeah. community then. Just from what you were saying, it sounds like there was a lot of dehumanising coming from the media at large. Media and the church, I'll never forgive them. Wow. And was your photography at that time, uh, was, I, I could imagine that was an important way to humanise what was going on. Perhaps, yes. But I don't think it got out until, my images never got out into the mainstream until the 90s, Mm. where I did that famous piece of mine called Alan, Mm -hmm. my ex-boyfriend who died of AIDS. In 1990, he died. Mm. That didn't come out until later. So I think we were still very marginalised then during, during, during AIDS. Absolutely. Where did your photography take you during that time? What were you photographing? Well, it's, I was just photographing. In fact, I wasn't so consciously photographing AIDS. I'd go to the vigils and things like that. But um, I I did photograph Alan and I photographed a few other people too um, who who wanted me to photograph them Mm. in some ways. And Alan wanted me to photograph him. He never said it, but I felt that in his life, he was being rejected on, on, as he got sicker. He was being rejected by some of his friends. Mm. Um, and, um, and so at, at least I was still paying him attention. Mm. And so I think that that, that, was, that was part of his attitude of, of the relationship we had. 
through that hard time also comes such resilience for gay men and for the gay community at large. Was there a light at the end of the tunnel that sort of presented itself at any point? I've heard you talk about the party scene being almost like an answer to that. Yes, that's right. There was a dance, a party dance craze which swept Sydney in the late 80s and the early 90s. And it's only just recently that I've, I've attributed that to um, the AIDS crisis. They went hand in hand and one was an escape from those grim times, the dance party. And, and I've only kind of re realised that just recently. But eventually better treatments came in. When there was the protease inhibitors came in, things began to change and people, it wasn't such a death sentence then. And so there was no magic cure, but gradually people learned to live with it, I guess. And where does your work take you today? Are you still photographing? Much less so photographing now. What I'm doing is I'm working through my archive ah. and I'm, I'm trying to get it into a place where it's accessible. Hmm. And so I'm putting all my energy into digitising my collection and um, making it accessible for future generations. And what will the future of, of that archive be? Is there a, a gallery attached? Is there a museum? I'll leave it to a library. I'm still deciding which library to leave it to. So I think it's um, important to kind of edit your photographs mm. down. And I, I recently had what I call a retrospective exhibition at the Kogoma in um, Brisbane and that was a very satisfying experience because I, I worked on that with a curator for three years oh. and we just went through things. It, it was a case of editing it down and making sense of it and after I did the exhibition and looked at, at the exhibition I could make more sense of my life which I think is really one of the things that art does to you. Mm. Making sense of your life, I mm. think, is really a, a huge thing. In the queer exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria, there's some of your work, obviously. Um, one of them is Battling Time in 2010. Um, I'm looking at it here now, and there's a picture of a hand. Is this your hand? Yes. It actually, it reminds me of the scene in Priscilla, when Bernadette is sitting there at breakfast and Tick says, shut up and eat your hormones. And she's sitting there with like a bowl of, <laughs> a bowl of pills. Um, there's your hand holding an assortment of pills and then a glass of water. And then you've drawn lines and written on it the description of, of all the of the pills. pills what hand. they do, yeah. yes. So, yes, I think that's a probably a pretty common ex experience of trying to extend your life. Mm -hmm. is the way I saw it. And in fact, there's Viagra is one of the pills there too. And That's not a daily pill for you, I hope, William. No, not a daily <laughs> pill. The other image um, that I'm looking at here is William in scholar's costume 
from the old, new, borrowed blue series in 2008. Tell me about that image. I came out as a gay person, let's say, in 1970. Mm -hmm. And then 12 years later, I came out as a Chinese. And so I connect these two processes Coming out as gay meant that I was liberating myself from my sexuality being suppressed. And when I came out as a Chinese, I, I was also liberating myself from the fact that my ethnicity had been suppressed. Um, I, I see them as very close processes, although it was harder for me to recognize that my ethnicity had been suppressed. Mm. Being gay, I could hide, mm. but my ethnicity I couldn't hide because it was the way I looked. But I was still suppressed by um, social standards, and so I did have to declare that I'm embracing my Chinese heritage, and this is part of me, and it had been denied and unacknowledged. In quite a subtle way, hmm. I had been conditioned to think that only white people could be sexually attractive. Hmm. That was like this, the subplot. Hmm. And so it just took me a long time to em embrace what I looked like and hmm. who I was. I think queer people can understand what having our identities omitted from culture and all of the places that we learn about what is attractive, what is desirable, what is valuable. Um, you know, for the longest time, queer people haven't seen ourselves represented. But then when you compound that with sort of the layer of being Chinese, being a racial minority, not only are you not seeing yourself represented as a, as a gay Chinese man, you're also... The, the forms of representation of um, Chinese people and Asian people in pop culture um, have historically been quite pejorative. You know, there's very few examples um, of heroes and of leaders and of strength and of even leading roles uh, given to Chinese people and Chinese men. And, you know, historically Chinese men have often been portrayed almost the antithesis to the hero and and seeing that reflection of you so consistently in the media and then having the intersection of a gay identity, it's got to be nigh impossible <laughs> to battle through all of that and come out the other side and say, oh, actually, I am valuable and worthy and I can be, I am attractive or, or you know, I can see myself as a, a sexual being. Yes, all those things, That's that was quite important to me, very important. Yeah. William Young, thank you so much for chatting to me today. Uh, I'm looking forward to everybody seeing your work in the Queer Exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria. Um, it's been an absolute delight. Lovely chatting with you. Next episode, I'm going to be chatting to fashion designer Linda Jackson, and I'm going to be talking to Angela Hessen, who's the curator of Australian art here. We're going to be talking queer sensibilities. Make sure that you get down to the National Gallery of Victoria here in Melbourne 
to see this new and free exhibition titled Queer. It is on display from the 10th of March through to the 21st of August 2022. I'm Courtney Act. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>